Uh, Let's uh, spend time again before the throne of God as we open his word. Our Father, as you have known for a long time, today is the day that we would be at the end of the story of Abraham and your word. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the recreation project that you undertook in Abraham that is yet to end. Thank you for starting that project in Abraham all the way through the time of the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to inaugurate your kingdom. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus is coming again. This descendant of Abraham is coming again as the God-man to bring your children home to their final resting place in the new creation. And we thank you, Lord, for this plan that you have undertaken, that your promises have been unfailingly true. And Lord God, as we now venture into this last part of Abraham's story, we pray your blessing. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher and guide, that you would rivet the eyes of our hearts onto you as we travel through this next part of your word. We pray these things in the mighty, powerful, saving name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Abraham is unquestionably the most important character in the book of Genesis. But even more than that, as T. Desmond Alexander has said, the person named Abraham, quote, casts a shadow which extends across the whole Bible. We've spent these many weeks trekking through the story of Abraham because Abraham is such a massively important figure in our Christian faith. His story began all the way back at Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, and today we will reach the end of his story once we come to Genesis 25, verse 11. But we pick things up today at the first verse of Genesis 24, and I want to encourage you to have a Bible open this morning. Genesis 24 is 67 verses long, and then we also want to touch on the first 11 verses of Genesis 25 for a total of 78 verses of Scripture, so obviously we won't do as we normally do on Sunday which is to go through each and every verse. Rather, I want to give you just a summary of these 78 verses and highlight uh, a few particulars that I think are important in this lengthy section. Genesis 24 is the story of Abraham seeking a wife for his son Isaac. As we know, Isaac is the promised son of Abraham. Isaac is the one through whom the covenant promises are to unfold. If Isaac doesn't get married, there will be no seed, no offspring that will be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in heaven. If Isaac doesn't have a wife and start having children then the entire promised plan of God will be in jeopardy. And so Genesis 24 tackles that issue. 
By the end of Genesis 24, Isaac will have a wife named Rebecca, and they can start having kids. In the first nine verses of Genesis 24, what happens is that Abraham commissions one of his senior servants to go over to the region where Abraham had come from, to the region of Haran, on a mission to find a wife for Isaac. And there are two things, very quickly, two things for us to take note of in these first nine verses. And again, we need to have our Bibles open because these verses won't be on screen this morning. So first of all, we notice that in verse 1, we are told that the Lord, notice this, the Lord had blessed Abraham in how many things? In all things. Abraham is now at the very tail end of his life, and the record shows, looking back on his lifetime, that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. In other words, God had come through, hadn't he? He'd come through on the promise that he had made back in Genesis 12:2, where God had said to Abraham at the beginning of Abraham's mission, God had said, I will bless you. God has come through with blessing during Abraham's lifetime. Well, the second thing for us to notice in these first nine verses of Genesis 24 is that in verses 6 through 8, we have the very last words spoken by Abraham in the Bible. And these last words of Abraham, very significantly, are full of faith in God. May the last words that I speak on this earth also be full of faith in God. As Abraham speaks here to his servant, just before the servant goes out to seek a wife for Isaac, Abraham says to the servant at the end of verse 7, notice, in faith he says to the servant, as you go out to find a wife for my son Isaac, God will send his angel before you. Notice that Abraham believes, doesn't he? He believes that this mission to find Isaac a wife will be a God-directed and God-orchestrated mission. The angel of the Lord will go before the servant as the servant goes out. And so the servant goes out, beginning at verse 10. And by verse 12, the servant is at prayer. Verses 12 through 14 are the prayer of Abraham's servant as he sets out on his mission. And in verse 14, the servant expresses his own confidence that God was in this mission to find Isaac a wife. In verse 14, the servant acknowledges that God had already appointed appointed a wife for Isaac. He uses that word appointed. God had done this. Now the servant just needs to find this woman on the ground, and so he prays for the Lord's guidance. When Rebecca shows up, and she starts to fit the exact picture of what the servant had been praying for, the servant then continues to show his God-centered approach. He continues to show that his desire is to keep in step with the Spirit. In verse 21, the
The servant watches the actions of Rebekah at the well. And he gazes at her in silence, the scripture says. Verse 21. He's gazing at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey, his mission, or not. He's a prayerful person who wants to keep in step with the Spirit. And then in verses 26 and 27, we find the servant at worship, blessing God, expressing the fact that the Lord had led him on this mission. Rebecca is the one whom God had appointed for Isaac. Rebecca's brother Laban invites the servant into the house for a meal. And in verses 33 through 49, we have a long, involved speech from the servant giving testimony to how this whole mission had unfolded. And at the end of the speech, notice in verse 50, all Laban and Laban's dad can say is, This thing has come from the Lord. Yes, the Lord had guided this entire mission. Rebekah was the one for Isaac. And then the servant worships some more in verse 52. And then he ends up taking Rebekah with him to Canaan. And the very first encounter, romantic encounter, between Rebekah and Isaac happens in verses 63 through 67, the end of the chapter. And verse 67 reads, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, who had already died, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So listen, as Genesis 23 had centered on the land promise, Abraham purchased that first little sliver of land in Canaan in Genesis 23, Genesis 24 really centers on the other major promise of the covenant, the promise of offspring. Isaac, the son of Abraham, now has a wife named Rebekah, and they can start having kids in the way of the Lord. In Genesis 25, we're on to Genesis 25 now. In Genesis 25, the focus returns. Notice at the start of the chapter, it returns to Abraham. And for some of us, the first four verses of Genesis 25, I think might inspire us to have a cup of coffee just to stay awake. Because now we get this little genealogy here, and it's full of all sorts of difficult foreign names. And I want to give kudos to Jennifer this morning for having the courage uh, to read that passage in Genesis 25 with all those bizarre names. Uh, it's part of your discipleship, so thank you. For that. Um, so notice these verses, though. Late, late now, it's late in his earthly days, in Abraham's earthly days, he remarries. According to these verses, he marries this woman named Keturah. And together they have six sons whose names are all listed here. uh, Together with some of the names of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Now I think that part of the point of these verses is to show us that Abraham was truly becoming 
the father of nations. In this branch of Abraham's lineage, we have the beginnings of people groups like the Midianites and like the Sabaeans and like the Dedanites and the Asherites, etc. He's becoming the father of nations. But notice verse 5. In verse 5, the focus is back on Isaac. Verse 5 says that Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Yes? It's Isaac who gets the inheritance. The biological son of Sarah gets Abraham's belongings, not any of the sons of Keturah. And in verse 6, even though Abraham's other sons do get a few gifts from Abraham, they are sent away from Isaac toward the east. Again, the emphasis here we need to see is that Isaac is the true heir. Isaac is the one through whom the promises of the covenant are to unfold. And then finally, friends, we have the brief and perhaps surprisingly brief obituary notice and burial notice for Abraham in verses 7 through 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, interestingly enough, they come together here. They come together and they buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. The inheritance of the blessing goes to Isaac. God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai, Roy. Now there are three things to talk about in these final verses of the story of Abraham. The first thing is that phrase there in verse 8, in a good old age, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. That phrase, in a good old age, in the original Hebrew, is exactly the same as it was in Genesis 15:15, 15, 15, where God had promised Abraham that Abraham would be buried in a good old age. So that Genesis 25:8 is showing us that what God promised Abraham in Genesis 15:15 15, 15 has come true. Abraham is buried in a good old age, just like God said it would be. God is faithful to his promises. Amen? Amen. He's faithful to his promises. Secondly, notice at the end of verse 8 that phrase, gathered to his people. Very interesting. Abraham died, and Abraham was gathered to his people. What we notice in the order of the text 
is that Abraham being gathered to his people happens in between his death, which happens earlier in verse 8, and his burial, which happens a little later in verse 9. So that apparently, being gathered to one's people is something that is separate from death itself, and also separate from burial. Abraham wasn't buried with his ancestors. Being gathered to one's people happens in between death and burial. Many Old Testament scholars have argued, and I think they're right, that this phrase, gathered to his people, is a hint, or it's an indication, that even in the time when the Old Testament was being written, there was a belief in an afterlife. However fuzzy that belief might have been for these people in the time before Christ. Nevertheless, there was a belief that when a person like Abraham died, he was gathered to his people. That is, reunited with his ancestors who had died before him. This was something that happened just after one died, but before the person was even buried. Gathered to his people. Well, the third and final observation we need to make in these last verses of Abraham's story is simply this, and I want you to listen. That Abraham, Abraham, that towering biblical figure, that paragon of faith and obedience, Abraham died. He expired. He became deceased. Even Abraham. And Abraham died with the promises only very partially fulfilled. He did not receive what was promised, to quote Hebrews 11.39. At his death, Abraham only had a tiny sliver of land that he owned in the promised land of Canaan. And he only had a single son through Sarah named Isaac. Abraham died, and Abraham died, friends, with loose ends, with unfulfilled promises. The lesson is that if the biblical giant named Abraham died, then no one is indispensable in God's kingdom. Not me and not you. Now, that doesn't mean, when I say that, and I want to add to that by saying that God did not depend on Abraham. That's part of what we're learning here. God did not depend on Abraham, and God does not depend on you or on me. Are you with me? He does not depend on us. Now, that does not mean that he doesn't love us. It does not mean that he doesn't call us and use us for his purposes, but he doesn't depend on us in the ultimate sense. Abraham died, and we will one day die unless Jesus returns first. And when we die, there will be loose ends. The promises that God has made to us will not be quite fulfilled. When we die and lie in a casket... 
and people come to our funeral and bury us and then eat little sandwiches afterwards in the funeral home. (laughs) I've been to too many funerals. (laughs) When all that happens, friends, the consummation of all things will still be off in the distance. The promises will not have been totally fulfilled. But as believers like Abraham, we will die in hope. Amen? Amen. And with faith. As believers, we go to our graves knowing that there is a reality beyond this present reality. As Ian Duguid has put it, there is a world beyond this world. The new heavens and the new earth are coming. The promise will come true. Because God is faithful to his promises. Well, friends, we've now come all the way through the story of Abraham. And what I want to do with the closing moments of this sermon, uh, this sermon series actually, is just to reemphasize Abraham's significance in the Bible. Uh, The important place that Abraham holds in our faith as Christians. Abraham is known to us in scripture as a man whose heart God found faithful. Nehemiah 9.7 God found Abraham's heart to be faithful. Abraham is known to us in scripture as a prophet of God. Genesis 20 verse 7 And Abraham is also called friend of God. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, and then again in Isaiah 41, verse 8. In Psalm 105, 6, Abraham is identified as servant of God. And Abraham is also known to us in his story as a man who intercedes in prayer, especially in Genesis 18, where he intercedes on behalf of Lot and on on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. God gives his own summary of Abraham in Genesis 26, verse 5, a little later in the story of Genesis, where God says that Abraham was a man, listen, God says that Abraham was a man who, quote, obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So then, despite... All the ups and downs in faith for Abraham in his story. Despite the times when Abraham failed in faith, which he did, the Bible remembers him as a man of faith. The faith of Abraham ended up outweighing those times when he had acted in unfaithfulness. And so Hebrews 11 is careful to remember all the things that Abraham did by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go from his homeland, from Haran. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. So that when we think of faith and the nature of biblical faith, 
Abraham's story is a great place for us to land and to meditate. But friends, I want to suggest to you that Abraham's story is about much more than simply his personal faith. Abraham's story is also about a covenant. Much of the first 11 chapters of Genesis are taken up with the downward spiral of humankind that happens after the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. When Abraham appears on the scene at the close of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we get the first indications of God's response to the tragedy that had unfolded in Genesis 3 through 11. God's response to the sin problem is to call Abraham and through Abraham to bring about eventually the nation of Israel through whom God would bring blessing to the cursed, sin-sick world. Abraham is a new start in Genesis. Abraham is a new Adam who arrives on the scene as Adam was given the Garden of Eden from which Adam was to spread God's glory over the face of the earth. Abraham is given the land of Canaan from which he, and Canaan is described in Scripture in explicit terms as another Eden. From Canaan, Abraham is to spread the glory of God over the face of the earth. And as Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, so Abraham is promised offspring that will number as many as the stars in heaven and as the sand on the seashore. Abraham is a new Adam. The first three verses of Genesis 12, which are really the start of Abraham's story, those first three verses of Genesis 12, listen, can really be taken as what Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen have called a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, are a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the world. In those three verses, just three verses, we have the beginnings or the seed of the land and offspring promises and God's plan to bless the world. And then in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, the covenant that God forges with Abraham in God's plan to bring blessing to the entire earth, this is a covenant that is really focused on offspring and land. And as the Old Testament progresses, after the story of Abraham now, so at, and even after the book of Genesis, whenever the covenant promises of land and offspring come up in the text, as they do often, they are most usually accompanied by the name of Abraham. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 8 is representative here. When God is talking to Moses there, Exodus 6, 8 He's talking to Moses as the Hebrew people are still languishing inside the nation of Egypt. God promises Moses, listen to what he says. He says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to who? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land promise. 
way after the time of Abraham, is reiterated time and time again, also in Exodus 32.13 and 33.1, and Leviticus 26.42, and Numbers 32.11, and Deuteronomy 1.8, and 6.10, and on and on and on. I won't name all the passages. The land promise is normally accompanied by the name of Abraham. And the same is the case with the repeated promise of offspring. Abraham's name comes up time and time again, in association with these covenant promises. In fact, so connected is the covenant with the person of Abraham, so vital is Abraham's connection with that covenant, and so vital is Abraham's connection with the God of that covenant, that Abraham's name, listen, Abraham's name is often used when the God of Israel is being identified. Again, Abraham's name is often used when the God of Israel is being identified. For example, Psalm 47, verse 9. The God of Israel is identified there as the God of Abraham. That's who the God of Israel is. Or Isaiah 29, verse 22. The God of Israel is identified with these words, the Lord... Which Lord are we talking about? The Lord who redeemed Abraham. Imagine, friends, your name being used when someone wanted to identify God. Oh, that God? Yeah, he can be identified as the God of Brent. Wow. The God of Abraham. In Exodus 3, verse 6, God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Even over in the New Testament, in Acts 3, verse 13, as Peter is preaching at Solomon's portico, he calls the God who glorified Jesus the God of Abraham. In all of this we can see just how foundational And how intimate with God and how foundationally important Abraham is in the story of our faith. And of course, Abraham is at the base, isn't he? He's he's the one at the very foundation of the nation of Israel itself. And the Old Testament scriptures recognize this. They celebrate this time and time again. For instance, verses like Psalm 105.6 and Isaiah 41.8, and Jeremiah 33.26, call the people of Israel the offspring of Abraham. That's who you are, Israel. You are the offspring of Abraham. Israel originated in Abraham. Israel is the offspring of Abraham. Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, say something very interesting. They say that the rock out of which Israel was hewn, and the quarry from which Israel was dug, was Abraham and Sarah. Israel had its very origins in Abraham. In the New Testament, in Romans 4.1, Paul calls Abraham the forefather of Israel. Abraham is such a monumentally important figure in our faith. And have you noticed also 
that God's salvation and his deliverance in the Bible are often connected to the name of Abraham. For example, when God was getting ready to deliver the Hebrew people out of Egypt at the beginning of the book of Exodus, a major factor in God's motivation to deliver them out of Egypt, according to Exodus 2.24, was that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then after the golden calf episode, we remember that horrible episode, when God threatened to destroy his people because of their mutiny, Moses pleaded with God, and as Moses was pleading for deliverance, he asked God to remember who? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember the covenant, Lord, that you, have, you had made with them. In 2 Kings 13.23, the Lord was gracious to Israel during the days of King Jehoahaz. God had compassion on his people. And why? It was because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God would not destroy them or cast them Aside. So Abraham and the covenant with Abraham are connected even with God's deliverance and his salvation. Abraham is massively important for the Bible and for our faith. But now listen. Of course, the real significance of Abraham, the real importance of this towering figure of the Bible and also the reason that we've spent these many weeks in his story is that Abraham is one of the two most famous human ancestors of Jesus, with David being the other one. Abraham's real importance is found in the fact that Jesus Christ comes by his lineage. So let's just trace this again briefly in our waning moments. We start in the story of Abraham, Genesis 22:18. In Genesis 22:18, God had said this to Abraham. He had said, "In your seed, Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed." And then we can trace a line, really, of single individuals who flow from the loins of Abraham, who are particularly blessed of God, and who spread the blessing of God with others. Isaac, and then from Isaac, Jacob, and then from Jacob, Joseph, who is blessed and who himself is a blessing in the book of Genesis, but whose line, according to Psalm 78, verses 67 to 72, the line of Joseph is later rejected in favor of Judah, who is the fourth-born son of Jacob. From Judah's tribe, eventually, comes the single individual named Jesus And Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16, and also according to the Apostle Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 3, Jesus, listen, is the seed, 
the offspring of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth received blessing. It's Genesis 22:18, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter says to the people of Israel in Acts 3:26, he says that Jesus came to quote, bless you. That's Abrahamic, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Jesus is the seed, the offspring of Abraham, sent as God's culminating blessing unleashed on the nations. Jesus descends in the lineage of Abraham. The very first verse of the New Testament makes that clear. Luke 3.34 makes that clear. But Jesus, having descended from Abraham, Jesus, listen, he transcends, doesn't he? He transcends Abraham in stature, and he transcends Abraham in significance. As important as Abraham is in our Bible and for our faith, Jesus is millions of times more important. And Jesus himself knew this. Jesus made his stature in comparison to Abraham very plain when Jesus said in John 8:58, before Abraham was... I am, identifying himself with the I am, the God who had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Two verses before that, in John 8, 56, Jesus said that Abraham, listen to what he said, Abraham rejoiced to see what? To see my day, says Jesus, to see the day of Jesus. Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. It was the day of Jesus walking the earth that Abraham longed for. Jesus, you see, is unmistakably more significant than Abraham. Where Abraham was to bring blessing to the world as he kept worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, Jesus, according to Revelation 7, brings blessing to every nation, tribe, people, and language, but is himself worshipped as the Lamb who saves. Where Abraham was chosen by God for a mission, Jesus chooses people for himself for a mission. Jesus said in John 15, 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus does the choosing. And where Abraham circumcised himself and all the males of his household, Jesus circumcises the hearts of every believer. We receive what Colossians 2.11 calls the circumcision of Christ. Jesus is supreme in stature, Supreme in significance. He is more vital, he is more important than Abraham could ever hope to be. Well, there were some Jewish folks in Jesus' day who reckoned that because they were biologically descended from Abraham, well then, God's blessing surely rested upon them. Jesus challenged that notion. It wasn't biological descent or family lineage that meant automatically 
that one was right with God. Rather, listen carefully, it was the sharing in the faith of Abraham that mattered. Having an enlivened spiritual life given by God centered on Jesus. This is what makes a person the offspring of Abraham. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, listen to what he says, if, if you are Christ's, are you Christ's? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, whether you be a Jew who takes Christ as Lord and Savior or a Gentile who does, like me. Friends, it's Jesus and not Abraham who died on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. It's Jesus who stood in place of sinners and died the death that sinners deserved for their rebellion against God. It's Jesus and not Abraham who rose from the dead the first fruits of a wider resurrection of life for those who believed. And it's Jesus, not Abraham, who then ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's Jesus who is coming again to wrap up history and to live eternally and personally and physically with those who have believed. Now there is nothing more important for you, I don't care who you are, there is nothing more important for you than to stake your life and your whole being on the descendant of Abraham known as Jesus Christ. There is nothing more crucial for you than to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. If you haven't done so already and you sense now that God is prompting you, even in this time of worship, I want to ask you to bow your head and to pray with me this way. Let's pray. God in heaven, I recognize that before you and before your holy character, I am a sinner. I have not glorified you in my life. I have sinned against you. I have turned to things that are less than satisfying when you are the fountain of my satisfaction. I repent now of my sin. I turn from it 180 degrees. And in turning from it, I turn to your son, Jesus Christ, and ask for the forgiveness that you have provided only in him. I turn to the one who died on the cross and who shed his blood and who stood in my place to forgive me of my sin and bring me into right relationship with you. I receive Jesus as Savior from my sin and Savior from your wrath that was coming on my sin. And I receive Jesus as Lord. I pray that from this day forward, that his risen presence would surround me and guide me and correct me and mold me and help me so that I see your mission 
for my life, a mission that will take up the rest of my earthly days. Thank you, God, for your Son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in the name of my newfound Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. fitting this morning that we have a very Christ-centered benediction from the breastplate prayer of St. Patrick. May Christ be your shield today, Christ before you, Christ behind you, Christ beneath you, Christ above you, Christ on your right, Christ on your left. May Christ be with you, Christ be in you, alone and in multitude, near and afar, for all you face and for all your life, that you may live in the protection and power of his blessing. Amen. Amen.